with the global economic climate continuing to be one of uncertainty and and the way business leaders are starting to think about how they need to identify areas of profitable growth, we're really excited to share with you two leaders who can help us unpack how leaders are thinking and prioritizing their time when it comes to their B2B sales and go-to-market strategy, and really starting to think about how they can go deeper and set them up for success in 2023. Hi, I'm Tim Grogan. Welcome to Take the Lead, Episode 6 from LinkedIn Sales Solutions. Dig deeper to grow. In this episode, we'll unpack how leaders can focus on three core areas in their B2B sales and go-to-market strategy that goes deeper and sets them apart and sets them up for success in 2023. In my role as uh, Director of Sales Solutions, I think you know, when we start meeting with customers, we're starting to see a lot of reflection on their investments. And really, I think one of the key messages I'm starting to see is focused, prioritized growth, meaning how do they rationalize the investments perhaps that they've made in technology uh, during the pandemic and how are they creating more productivity in their business to achieve the growth goals that the business have set. And look, today, I'm really delighted that we have two incredible guests on our episode. The first is Dilip Cannon. He's a regional director based in Singapore, and he's been with Grab for over the five years. And Grab's now like really helping to drive one of probably the most successful mobility, delivery, and fintech company in Asia. And we're so excited to help him have him here. Welcome to the show, Dilip. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, LinkedIn, for this kind invite. Um, just to give a quick background on myself, which I, which I think might be useful in the context of this overall conversation. Um, I've been at Grab, like you said correctly, Tim, for slightly over five years throughout in the B2B space, uh, which is with the business unit Grab for Business, which is the pioneer B2B arm of Grab. Um, in a nutshell, and this is literally my 30-second spiel to you, yeah. Uh, in a nutshell, we are basically a B2B integrated layer on top of Grab's multiple marketplaces. Um, and we, we, we allow for corporates of all sizes, enterprise, mid-market and SMEs to leverage Grab's marketplace services across mobility and deliveries through a management platform that is Grab for Business. Prior to that, um, I spent six and a half years at Google on the ad sales and ad tech side across India, Australia, and Southeast Asia. Um, but, by origin- but I originally started my career um, with FMCG in India. The second guest is Chris Russo, and Chris is based in Sydney and is a highly successful and a transformational leader in the telecommunication industry. And she's now working for TPG Telecom as their general manager of sales and solutions. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you, Tim, and hello also to Dilip. It's fantastic to be in a B2B conversation and a B2B conversation about sales. So two of my absolute uh, passions and interests. And yeah, here I am in the telco industry where one industry that's always trying to reinvent ourselves in not only how we sell, but really in understanding the interaction model between buyers and sellers. And I think the world right now has changed in such a way that it's time for us to pause and just reflect on where is our sales journey going. Uh, At TPG Telecom, where the formation only two years ago of two very strong brands, Vodafone and TPG, coming together to form TPG Telecom, a full service telecommunications provider. We're super excited about the road ahead for us. And part of that is really getting into a richer conversation 
about what sales looks like in our industry over the next three to five years. Fantastic. Uh, really excited to have you here, Chris, and, uh, and welcome. Today, we're covering three topics in this episode. The context within the current macro environment that's challenging B2B sales. Really at the core of that is data. How are we utilizing data with purpose? How is real-time data starting to supercharge our executive decision-making during these difficult times? And the second is never has relationships been more important in helping people make the right decisions, but how we influence those relationships is now fundamentally different. And relationship intelligence is becoming at the forefront of how leaders are thinking around the core buying circle to enable value creation. And the third is the value of buyer intent, capitalizing on the right signals to reach out and add value to the customer journey. Wherever you're listening to Take the Lead, subscribe or follow the show if you haven't already. We have five episodes in the series on leadership on sales across Asia Pacific, and they're all available to listen after this one. LinkedIn's own data and current news cycles reveal an increasingly challenging macro environment for businesses to navigate. And to start with this, I want to ask both of you, like, what's top of mind when you're thinking about how you want to prepare your teams for 2023? Dilip, how are you preparing at Grab? We are actually in the middle of budgeting season for next year. So it's a, it's a very interesting time, especially with the macroeconomic environment being the way it is, right? I would be lying to you, Tim and Chris, and to all our uh, listeners, if I was saying that we use incredibly advanced and sophisticated sales planning uh, predictive analytics-based tools, which um, um, due to the absolute influx of rich um, on-time intent-based data, give us amazing sales uh, forecast for next year. Right? That would be an outright lie. Um, we still use Google Sheets. We still use Microsoft Excel. Um, I, would, I would actually even go one step ahead and say that Microsoft Excel and Google Sheets, you know, depending on the company in which you work in, are still the most widely used sales planning tools that you would see across, uh, across industries and across teams, right? But what we have started to do is we have started to look at more signals than just sales numbers and, and verbal uh, data and feedback and insights from our sales and key accounts teams and our marketing and, and demand generation teams. We are now looking at signals that, that have to do a lot with relationships in terms of what is the depth of the relationship with your book of business and what is the, the breadth of the relationship. So the depth of the relationship is how much, uh, how much uh, on, a, on a scale of 1 to 10 does your main set of contacts or buyer circle or stakeholders, how, how much do they trust you, how much are they willing to uh, go ahead with our proposal in the next 3, 6, 9 and 12 months. And then the, the depth of the relationship pertains to who are all the stakeholders within the core buyer circle and then even, even in, the, in the secondary buyer circle who are willing to listen to us, who are willing to be evan evangelists for us, who are willing to be key core um, stakeholders for us within that target company. Uh, and then we try to model what a revenue projection in our book of business would look like. So it's, it's a work in progress. I wouldn't say it's completely done. Um, but from a data perspective, I also want to kind of allude to a, you know, a historical anecdote, if I may. So I'm from the southwestern state of Kerala in India. 
uh, in the deep south. Uh, if you ever get a chance, Chris and Tim, please do visit. It is one of the top 10 tourist destinations in the world. Um, Kerala is, is historically known for spices, right? So Kerala sits on the ancient maritime silk route from China, Southeast Asia, India, all the way to the Middle East and to Europe. So Kerala has been trading spices with um, the Roman Empire, the, Ro the Roman Republic, the Greeks, the, the Phoenicians, the, the Egyptians since ancient times, the last 5,000 years. But apart from that interesting historical tidbit, the point I want to make is when traders from multiple countries in ancient times used to come to Kerala's shores, to the ports, and deal with traders, and Kerala is very famous historically for cardamom and pepper, and pepper at one time was more expensive than gold. Do you know how do you, they used to do these negotiations, which were actually B2B negotiations? They would link their hands over under a piece of cloth so no one could see them, and there would be hand signals that would determine the volume, the timing, the price, and the frequency of the purchase, right? This is extraordinary because you have to understand this is a time period of time where information is scarce, data has to be directly shared, and languages are so, so many in number that it's almost impossible for a seller to uh, understand the languages of all their buyers. So they came up with this way of exchanging data and information, right? So now you flip it back to the modern age. We always talk about data as sitting with the main person, which is our sales team or our key accounts team. What we now need to look is, from a platform perspective, what are the tools out there that we should be leveraging to, to access, analyze, and extract data that talks about relationships and data-driven sales uh, from a complete book of business model rather than a one-to-one -one model. That's an extraordinary share. We've got us thinking deeply around the complexity of that and the visual itself uh, of how do you even learn <laughs> like the skills to be able to communicate in that way. You think about sales enablement and sales education as being primary to our business today. I can only imagine for those people who are going to be the future sellers or buyers, there must have been some form of education that is involved. Chris, I'd like to ask you the same question when it comes to how you're thinking about planning today. Well, full disclosure, I would start by saying, Dilip, it is lovely to know that I'm speaking to someone from Kerala originally because when I travel to India, it is certainly one of my most favourite um, destinations and that's probably because I quite like Ayurvedic medicine, but um, it's lovely to listen to your story. And it sparked in me a thought, um, Tim, because our priorities right now at TPG Telecom are very centred around planning and sales planning for the year ahead. And interestingly, we're going right back to basics in really understanding what are the habits of high-performing sales and starting the right conversation with our teams around what are the five or six key habits that we all know are critical to have any foundation of a good, successful sales year. And it was interesting. Dilip told a story about how sellers knew the trade and they knew that a ticket to the dance was knowing how to negotiate and how to interact. And I suspect if you turned up on those shores and you didn't know what needed to happen under that, you know, handkerchief around how to sale was to be made, you were left high and dry and you certainly would have never hit your quota. And I think there is an observation I'd make that maybe we have been too um, 
assumptive about thinking everyone turns up in their sales profession with a deep understanding of what those habits are, what the basics are. So we're doing a piece of work right now around getting really gritty with what are our top 10 habits? What do they need to be? They may be habits around pipelining. They may be habits around prospecting. They may be habits around how we're using Navigator today and some of the reporting that we take from it. But I would make the point that I think a lot of organizations have large sales teams and often maybe just make some assumptions about where their inherent skills and knowledge are. And I think going back to basics is always a great first step in then where to take the sort of advanced opportunities that data and AI will uh, will generate for us. I just want to add that when I went to B school in India, no single course taught me sales, right? If you cast your eye across the educational landscape, there are a million courses on marketing and strategy and consulting and analytics and finance and, and things that, that are absolutely necessary to run a business or start even start a business, right? From my perspective, I can't pinpoint a single top of mind sales course. Um, and a lot of my learning in sales and sales planning has been very organic. I've learned from doing or experiential learning on the job or from watching my managers or being coached by managers if I was so lucky or by literally just copying what my competitors were doing, right? So you, you have, we have to understand as people who are heavily invested in B2B sales and absolutely echoing Chris's points here. If we expect our team to turn up on day one and they know exactly what to do and they tell you that they know everything that they're supposed to do, that's a red flag, right? Now the second part is, this is neutral in terms of the macroeconomic environment, but what I've observed in the last 15, 16 years of being in the corporate world on the, on the, on the business facing side, is that a, a lot of your management, uh, especially senior management, expect very young sales professionals and key account managers to know the entire length and breadth of their book of business and their portfolios and be able to talk to C-level at their portfolio companies from day one, right? And this is without even the company thinking about what are the right tools and solutions and insights that I should be investing in or building organically or inorganically to give my people the ability to have those conversations and have that level of domain knowledge. And I believe strongly that companies are now slowly but surely starting to adjust that thinking. And as more and more data sits online, what you will notice, especially in the context of the LinkedIn marketplace, very similar to how advertising talks about online to offline, we are going to see sales platforms and sales solutions bringing the, bridging that online to offline gap that already exists today. I think you both highlighted some really interesting points and, and the summation I, I get out of that is that we've got to go back to perhaps down to some of those foundational skills that drive the profession and that there is a convergence of how we need to think and engage with the customer because of technology. I think a, a statistic that sort of brings this home as well is uh, we recently did our state of sales report and um, on average sales productivity or time spent selling is only uh, has been identified as only about 36% of people's time. So all of the other administrative work that people are doing to get themselves in a position to actually get in front of their customer is now diminishing, which I think, Chris, does go back to the point you made of like, 
what are the core things that are going to get us through that we've got to double down on to expand that time that we can influence. Absolutely, Tim. And Dilip really captured the point talking about where you learn your profession. And it is a profession and like any profession, it has career pathways through it. But being more intentional about where you are in your career pathway and some of those foundational skills that until you've built some level of proficiency in them, you're not ready to graduate into that next part of the career, I think is worth being intentional about that as we grow our sales teams. Because in sales, one absolute given is sales is relational. There is no doubt that if you are not someone who puts a currency on building relationships or investing in relationships, you're probably going to have a harder time in a sales career. But that doesn't mean any of the other parts that would make you a great seller can be compromised. Your diligence, your planning, how much time you're spending in collecting data and evidence, some of these more analytical or more, you know, studied activities that you might say, oh, well, that's the profession of the architecture team or the IT team or the finance team. And I think it's really important that as we keep moving forward in a post-COVID era, we start to get quite serious about what does it take to be a high-performing seller in 2023. And I'm putting forward the provocation that it's going to be many things, the the relational side, of course, but also a whole heap of other disciplines that data and analytics can bring to the table to help you. But I think you've first got to have the acknowledgement that I put a currency on that. I know that's important and I have to now make it representative of my day and that I could see the part of my day that is planning and I can see the part of my day that is meetings and I can see the part of my day that is follow-up. And I think if we don't start more conversations around that, then we can fall foul to hey, it's about having great relationships and don't worry, I'll, I'll be right on the day and I've got a good network. And, and I think it's a, it's a much bigger and more sophisticated game than that. Dilip, um, I think Chris highlights something that data is, is at the core of how we start to think and, and plan and prioritise. But we know that you know, not all data is created equal. And in today's landscape, there is you could almost argue there's almost too much data and, and as leaders, I think we're starting to think about how do we prioritize and utilize the right data to be to perhaps, like Chris said, help prioritize your time and structure your time in a right way. How are you evaluating the data that you have to work out what else you can do differently to, to move the business forward? I'm a huge comics fan, especially on Tintin. So my wife recently gave me permission to buy the entire uh, series of Tintin. So I'm like joyfully going through that again. The key word is joyfully. There is a character in Tintin called Jolly on Wag. He's an insurance salesman and the person, the gentleman just won't keep quiet. He is the epitome of someone who has never actively listened in his life, right? Um, And unfortunately, that is a stereotype that a lot of people carry in the corporate world about what a good salesperson should look like or, or behave like or talk like a fast-talking, slick, um, smartly-dressed individual who's incredibly um, good at arranging lunches and dinners and drinks and entertaining you around the table and then slipping in a business conversation the very last 10 minutes, right? 
this, this spans across cultures, across markets, across industries. And I think that's where the data part becomes really relevant as we see this transition from this old, old stereotype of how people should be selling, purely based on one-to-one -one human relationships, to data-driven relationships based on insights and actual value that you bring to the table for your buyers, right? And to give you a real-life um, uh, example of how this is working, some of my best sellers are very quiet, super diligent, like Chris was talking about, very methodical people who are incredible active listeners and have amazing observational skills. But when they do talk and they do pitch, it is a very, very direct, straightforward value exchange of ideas and solutions for clients, right? Which people appreciate, right? A lot of clients have now started to appreciate and especially in a post-COVID world where dinners and lunches are not the way they used to be, uh, a lot of people appreciate direct, uh, candor-filled conversations about solutions and problems and what, what is the value that you bring to the table for them. And if you cast your mind to the next five years, this, this trend is going to get even more intense in a good way. And then the underlying question is, what is the data that you're using, right? Uh, and to your point, Tim, you know, it's perfectly fine for our conversation to only look at the next 12 months, but really good businesses look at the next three, five years. Right? So what we are trying to do, at least from, our, from, from my perspective and my leadership up and my leadership downwards perspective, is at least think of the next two to three years. I love this share. I love the storytelling, Dilip, as well here. Chris, I know this is an area you're quite passionate about because data is something all sales professionals have had access to, but it's the growth of the sales professional as to how to use data. Where do you see we are on that maturity curve? Delete raises a really important point, which is all about the human condition, and that is people's ability to be seen and to felt to be heard. And that topic around listening, we traded it away years ago. And we thought it was not necessary or secondary to other personality characteristics that we thought had higher primacy in what you were looking for for a seller. And so I think we always knew listening is important, but in the role type of a seller, I don't think we graded it as high as we should. I had one of the most wonderful compliments last week when I watched my team pitch an RFP presentation. And at the end of the presentation, three hours in, the client said to us, that was comprehensive and we really felt you understood our requirements and you brought our needs to life. And I thought to myself, win, lose or draw, that's a wonderful place for us to be at because we were very focused in wanting to understand their needs and understand that we saw them and we could hear where they were at. And rather than suggest other things, we wanted to meet them at where they're at and then to earn that trust and maybe go further with it. But when it comes to data, I have a bit of a, not that I'm going to have any chance of catching up to Deleep's wonderful uh, storytelling, but Goldilocks is one character I would bring to life. And it's Goldilocks because I think data, more so than ever, we now have the richness of more data than we probably could have ever hoped for. And Tim, I think you're right. There's an overwhelm there. But Goldilocks, because it's got to be the right data 
for the right customer at the right time. And I do think there's something about how we can focus clear, more clearly on, I use these data insights when I need to determine this action at this part of the buying cycle and to not get too littered with, I've got so much data and I'm now spraying it because I'm not too sure where I want it to land. I often have my little uh, mental um, uh, mental image of my Goldilocks there because I think data is critical, but it's really data at the right time for the right um, for the right customer. This does go back to the comment of what are the five things that we need to do really well. And I, I know here in LinkedIn, how we manage to value is often influenced by the ability to use data at the right time to help someone understand the value creation that you're identifying for them. And I was talking to a high performer the other day, and it was interesting, these different sort of styles that you see in the sales profession today. And she was of the opinion that I only go to the customer when I've got valuable data. That is her way of operating. And she does a lot of work to identify and think through the customer's pain to identify what's the right data to go back and educate and to actually ultimately try to build that trust to then be in a position of helping. And it's quite a mature way of selling. It's a polite thing to do to not waste people's time. And more than ever, and maybe we've always been time poor, but don't you think even if you just straw poll the last 10 conversations you had, I'm sure somewhere in there is, I've never been more busy <laughs> than now. And so something that's very subtle, but uh, sometimes we should maybe make it a bit more obvious, it's very respectful to value people's time. And that your high performer says, I'm not going to be wasteful. I'll come when I have something of genuine value is actually going to play back triple fold for her or him in the next interaction they have with that customer because they'll say, this person's clearly wanting to see me for a reason because on my last three experiences with this person, it was of a high value, high reward exchange. I, I actually echo a lot of Chris, uh, Chris's points there and, and absolutely agree on, on, on the time part. So we have to also consider the, the, the psychological effect of the pandemic and how people's approach towards work has fundamentally altered for good hopefully for good, um, over the last two and a half to three years, right? So absolutely, I call the point about time and time management. And secondly, um, what we are now seeing uh, in terms of verbal feedback from our teams is there's a certain percentage of a book of business that doesn't want to talk to us now. There's a certain percentage of our book of business that doesn't want to buy from us now. And, you know, as people who run sales organizations and manage sales teams, and this is a message for all the sales managers out there, we need to have the maturity to accept it, analyze it, ask the right questions, handle these, those objections that can be handled internally or externally, protect our team, and then expand your book of business in order to hit your targets overall, right? Because there's no way that a buyer in this day and age is going to listen to you just because you're gonna hammer the same point or different points to them about different solutions or same solutions that you may or may not have in your arsenal. We recently have done some research and in B2B selling today, 
the ability to influence the buyer, it's now only a 5% window. So out of the whole sales cycle, the buyer is only open it for 5% of that time to be influenced by the seller. So the complexity and need to be able to <laughs> demonstrate value and actually get that time to be able to make influence the outcomes is you could you could argue that it's never been harder than it has today. And so, you know, when we think about you know deep sales and we think around how do we actually take you know, actionable insights at the right time to create value for that customer in that window, it, it does cause some, you know, it, it helps us sort of reflect what are the actions we're all individually taking. And I suppose I want to put it back to both of you when you think around relationship intelligence and, and maybe start with you, Dalit, because one of the things you you did cite is that you perhaps are starting to put some thought into that buyer and, and who you have historically worked with. And and you've come up with a little ranking of like a one to 10, you know, as to whether the depth and breadth of that customer base. Could you elaborate perhaps a little bit more on that um, and how that sort of influences perhaps your sales go to motion? We have only started the process. It's still very basic. We, and we're only doing it for our top key accounts within our enterprise book of business, not even applying into the mid-market or SME side of the business. Uh, we're trying to see, because if you look at the business culture of Southeast Asia, trust is a massive currency here. Uh, I would say even more than other parts of the world, say um, like Australia, New Zealand, or, or Western Europe, or North America. Um, th there has to be this inherent trust that the buyer circle has on the individual seller, right? It's not just the brand that they should be trusting or the solution. They have to also trust the seller, right, at an individual level. So that's what we're looking at. Um, but what we're also looking at are data models from LinkedIn Sales Insights in terms of um, the engagement that our prospects are doing or our existing customers are doing on the LinkedIn platform. And what we have found very interestingly is, um, and this is anecdotal from my team rather than any, any data-driven uh, insight, is especially in Southeast Asia, as markets mature, industries mature, and professionals get more confident about expressing themselves on platforms like LinkedIn, there is a deep-seated desire for a lot of people in, on, on the business management side to be seen and heard on a platform like LinkedIn, right? They want to contribute not just to conversations about pushing their brand or pushing their solutions out there, but also at a personal level talking, talking about topics that matter deeply to them professionally. And if you then correlate that with the relationship intelligence that we are extracting from a platform like LinkedIn, it gives us a that 5% gateway that you talked about to be expanded by a few percentage points higher so that you get to have a meaningful conversation. And Chris, you know, a, a data point that we've identified through our state of sales is I think the average buying circle now is, is I think, 9.8. Uh, and so that's expanded from, from where it was the year before. How, what's that like in, in your industry and, and how important is that because of their significant investment decisions uh, your customers are making when it comes to your, your, your solutions? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember learning from a sales leader many years ago and they always had a great line that I've kept as my own and, and always rely back on it, and that is people buy off people. 
And I hope the world over that never changes. But people buying off people should also be underscored by people buy off people they trust. And I think Dalip's point here is very important to call out and acknowledge as we're building out our relationship intelligence, because while the window might be very narrow and while the number of decision makers have increased, the customer has to get a sense of who you are. What is it you stand for? And one thing that actually I'm very grateful for is the LinkedIn platform, because it's a platform for me as the head of a sales organization to help give a very small window to customers about who I am. And hopefully by proxy, some sense that, well, if these are the things that matter to her, the person, maybe that gives us some level of confidence that the type of people that are in that organization uh, also have similar um, goals and similar priorities for the way in which they want to go about doing business with others. You know, are you a high integrity leader? Do you work very hard on being responsive? Do you work very hard on being someone who's credible? How reliable are you? These are things that I've used the LinkedIn platform to actually share my point of view on. Um, and you could say in a way, in that moment, I'm selling, which I suppose we always are in a way in that we're trying to express a point of view and, and hopefully by doing so in some small way, convey that intent that others would say, I buy into that way of thinking. And so I think these shortened windows, the increasing number of buyers, at the end of the day, there's a question you need to ask yourself is, is your customer buying? Do they have any desire to buy off you? I would also add to that by saying there has to be an increasing understanding and acceptance that B2B sales is a multi-year cycle. And this is irrespective of industry, irrespective of solution, right? Even the easiest product-led online slash SaaS slash ad tech solutions sometimes end up in multi-year conversations. And this is something that our group CFO, Peter Ui at, at Grab, um, uh, was talking about when he first joined, and I really, really uh, um, subscribe to that concept. He was talking about how when he was a CFO at LegalZoom, um, he, he could notice that the business was running on a four-year B2B cycle. And now that I look back at the last five and a half years of Grab for Business at Grab, it actually is a four-year cycle as well, right? One, one well-meaning intention would be to shorten that cycle so as to kind of bring a higher growth uh, um, number into that perspective. But as sales leaders and sales managers, we need to have the maturity, the foresight, and the ability to not only plan and execute a four-year plan, but also then think about what is the stretch goal that you can achieve by pulling it back by a couple of years. I think what's really important for a leader though today is recognizing that that buying circle has expanded and often the sales professional is not perhaps as mature, is comfortable with that one or two decision makers that maybe they've forged that historical relationship with and not realizing that there are a lot more influencers now that need to have buy-in and need to have an understanding and they're not investing enough time in those personas and one of the things that I love to do as a, as a sales leader myself is to sit down and, and and go to the account map on Sales Navigator and say who are we speaking to who is in your buying circle and part of that Tim I think starts by sellers upgrading their file that this is their new normal it isn't temporary and it doesn't mean 
you have to wait for it to pass because soon enough we'll go back to just being able to have the person I always used to sell to and I don't have to get annoyed by the complication of all of these other decision makers who don't really understand what it is we're trying to do. So I think there's a obligation for sales managers to upgrade their team's file, which is this is the new normal, we've moved, we're not going back. Um, you can now get excited about you have more people to meet, more connections to make, more needs to understand, and that is just part and parcel of what it now means to be a seller in this day and age. And I think that's sometimes managers can fall a little bit victim themselves and almost start to support their teams going, oh, isn't it a frustration? And if only we could go back to how it used to be. So I think it's just a very critical point that this isn't going away anytime soon, I would imagine. So sellers out there, <laughs> lift your socks <laughs> because this is how it now is and you can make choices if you don't want to be part of that. And so we might even see that buying circle even expand because of, you know, there's a lot of people who want to do a lot of things and have to rationalize and prioritize. Having that voice at that table through a number of people and that multi-threading, I think is going to be really important. And here's a little interesting data point uh, we, from our research, more than eight in 10 sellers, so that's 81%, said they have lost a deal over the last 12 months because one decision maker left that organization. And and if you don't have that breadth, as we've been talking about, then you're going to find yourself in that poor me <laughs> situation, Chris, that you highlighted. Um, Dilip, how many, for your services and offerings, how important is multiple decision makers for your business? And, and is that something that is top of mind for you as well? Absolutely. So, you know, to that point, what I would say first is as the ticket size goes up, your buyer circle uh, goes up as well, right? In terms of not just seniority, but the number of people who want to have a say in that conversation, because most companies have an internal uh, process or a framework that doesn't reward individual decision making at a high risk level, right? Or, or what they term as enterprise risk. So any as the, as the value of the deal goes up, enterprise risk models kick in. So that's why your buyer circle also expands. Dilip, you're bringing to mind one of my favorite reminders about how to look after customers. And uh, you just tapped on it, which is uh, if, you, if you're if you really focused on your customer, there's only two things you ever need to give your customer. The chance to help them grow their own career because the decisions they make about taking on your services are seen favorably inside their organization and helps them uh, to help transform their own organization through the way in which they've applied the capability that you are selling. So one, career advancement to the, the, the person you're working with. And the second, risk mitigation, that whatever it is you're selling to your customer, at the core of it, you're focused on taking away risk, either in the way in which you're deploying that capability, planning to transition that capability. But at the end of the day, whatever you're doing there ends up mitigating any potential risks. So yes, it's B2B and yes, it's technology in part. Both of us are in the same kind of wheelhouse of technology, but it becomes a very personalized interaction. It's also reminding me of something I'm passionate about, which is your your own value framework that you work on as a, as a sales professional. And I think we often think the value is my understanding of the solution. And I, and I think that is a, a shallow version of value because 
that is almost table stakes now. That's expected. I think value is how can I help you with the professional knowledge that's happening in the industry that I can amass because of the breadth of companies that we're working on in the industry? Can I give you something of value that you might not be aware of? Maybe it's the function that you work in. And once again, I have a perspective because we're experts in that function, say for LinkedIn here and sales. What what re- research are we doing that could help you and in, in, in educate you? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's all well in theory until you then have to execute it. And I have found some of the richest um, conversations I have is intuitively we think we want to do this, but then being able to sit down with someone who's actually done it and and can speak to, we thought this would happen, but here's what actually played out. Uh, and there's a common mistake where the seller, um, and this is an area of improvement for myself and my team, is to make sure that we don't ignore, but rather cultivate the younger buyers more and more, right? Especially even, even if their rank is junior, or even if they're only operational in nature. The second point is, don't assume that people who have left company A for company B are going to just transplant the relationship that you had with them at company A over to company B. They might have left company A for a plethora of reasons, And one of them could actually have been because they disagreed with your solution over there or the way it was implemented or the way it was used. So you would be basically running into a wall of no at company B until you actually have more data or information about what that person is doing at company B. What is their willingness to engage with you again? So when we, you know, when we interview sales managers and sales leaders, they say, oh, look at my, uh, look at my little black book. I have hundreds of people here. You know, they've all moved companies, but I can just make one phone call and we can connect and a solution is going to sell itself. Mate, that never almost happens, right? Especially in the last five to 10 years, that, that has slowed down considerably. So we should not make that assumption. And number three, A lot of organizations and B2B business units don't leverage their C-suite to sell. And I'm not doing that effectively at Grab either, although I've started doing making making some baby steps. So when I say C-suite, that that speaks to Chris and Tim, your point about leveraging internal company culture, right? What you could take away from that is how do you leverage the connections that your CFO and CHRO have, their relationships, the relationships that your CEO has built in the industry over the last 10, 20, 30 years to get warmer introductions at the bottom of the funnel so that your team can then go and leverage those and crunch the buying buying cycle and the sales cycle by, by months and years. I think that's a great little summary of relationship intelligence because at the core of relationship intelligence is the value of the connectivity that all people have within your organization and identifying who are the allies to enable you to get to that expansive buying Uh, circle that you've identified and how you're able to build, uh, use some value sort of creation or insights that enable that person through a warm introduction or through that ally to to, uh, get that meeting. And I love that. I think in summary here, I want us to take us into a, a, a topic which is really around the value of the buyer intent. And it's interesting, you know, how do we see, how do we qualify buyer intent today? You know, and, and, and if you think about historical buyer intent, it might have been someone who visited your website and actually sort of said, do you want more information? And, you, and said, yes. And you go, great. They're, uh, they might be ready to buy from us. Fantastic. They're pretty progressed, perhaps in their decision making. And now they want, they're reaching out for help. 
But how do we start to think about it? I'm interested to see if you've thought about this or, or whether this is something in your sort of planning of what potential signals are out there that, that are untapped and that we're not taking advantage of because you mentioned the importance of managing this sales cycle. If we can get and interpret the right signals earlier, perhaps we find identify the right ally sooner. Perhaps we leverage our network more effectively. How are you thinking about this, Chris? Is this something top of mind? The first thing I would um, focus in on, just thinking around buyer's intent, is that your sales team have the range and the maturity to know that buyers will be at different part of their journey all the time and to attempt to force a buyer into a part of the cycle when the buyer isn't ready is one of the most critical mistakes sellers can make. And I often think this is like any relationship. It has to be nurtured and grown, but it is your job as a seller to have a portfolio of relationships that are at different parts of their cycle, such that some will come in in the timeframes you need them to, and others will take the necessary amount of time they need to, and that you're a portfolio manager at your core in that you are managing a range of outcomes, some of which will have different cycles. And to attempt to paint that all with the same level of timeline and the same level of outcomes that need to happen in this quarter or that horizon, you'll set yourself up for a really miserable experience because it turns out in life they'll never quite go the way you want them to. And any attempt to contrive a different outcome will leave you in a really difficult relationship uh, with your with your organisation because they will feel harassed into an experience that I think COVID's shown us more than ever customers have choice and they will just go to places where um, they can get a better understanding. So I think the buyer intent is a maturity um, conversation and it's a maturity model that says buyers have different needs at different cycles. They will often give you different signals. Not all signals are the same. You might find that you've got a set of buyers who are just super active and not looking to buy anything but they are well-read, curious people who attend the webinars, who like to round out their thinking and right now have no discretionary budget to buy anything. And then you'll have others who won't even be visible to you and they'll pop up with a budget and they want to make a decision cycle in 12 weeks. And so I think there's just this uh, no, you know, this reality check everyone needs to have is it never follows a straight line. A few signals can be predicted as more willingness to buy versus less willingness to buy. But this is where, you know, sales absolutely needs strong partners in marketing and branding, right? Because if you, LinkedIn is talking about research that says, you know, if only 5% of buyers are in that correct buying buyer intent frame of mind, then your marketing should be talking to the remaining 95% along with your sales team. Because irrespective of the size of your team, you know, direct sales, channel partners, inside sales, pre-sales, customer success, key account management, it's literally impossible for any company in any category, in any vertical, in any market to cover the entire landscape without effective marketing, right? So that's where marketing, content marketing, branding, making sure you're, you, you make the right appearance in physical events or virtual events, makes uh, gets you a seat at the table 
when, like Chris mentioned, the buyer is ready to transact. Now, coming to a more advanced level of looking at buyer intent, we need to also keep in mind that a lot of prospective buyers who sit in the buyer circle actually are not decision makers, right? They're more like stakeholders slash influencers. And depending on the business culture of the market in which you operate, and especially in Southeast Asia, we 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 go through a little bit of a little bit of a <clears throat> dance off with the client to kind of determine who the real decision maker, the budget owner is, right? And I'm sure LinkedIn Sales Solutions, you folks also uh, also see that in your day to day. So when you talk about buyer intent, the the most important thing is at any given point in time. If the decision maker is ready to go, right, and you, you you don't even need to sit at the table. Do your influencers or stakeholders sitting at the same table have the right amount of information and content to present to the decision maker and get a decision through the line? I'm grateful for both of you to join us today and I've found that I've learned a lot from from listening to you and I've really enjoyed your company. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Delete, for being so insightful as well. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, LinkedIn, for this opportunity and thank you, Chris. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Delete. Wherever you're listening to Take the Lead, subscribe or follow the show if you haven't already. We have five episodes in the series on leadership and sales across Asia Pacific and they're all available to listen after this one. 